Welcome back, folks. This is episode 57, and I'll be talking about Africa and its role in the Great War up through 1915. What were your thoughts about the Ottoman series that I just finished up? I would love to hear your feedback or your opinion on the Ottomans' role in the Great War. Spoiler alert, and I've said this before, the Ottoman Empire will fall. Some say it was a direct result of the Great War, and in great part, I do agree with that. But I also feel it was inevitable that eventually the empire was going to crumble down after the Young Turks came into power. I think the Great War just gave it a shove. 1915 was a roller coaster for the Ottomans, much as it was for other nations. They had their own ups and downs. They suffered several defeats, yet pulled out some really big wins. I personally think Germany played a huge part in the Ottoman Empire's wins on the battlefield. Germany supported the Turks with some really good officers that came with a lot of experience. Yes, Turkey had some good military leaders, but I question how successful they would have been if they didn't have German military advisors on the ground, especially at Gallipoli. On the last episode, I ended it with a siege at Kut Alamara. By the time the Turks had surrounded the city, nobody on the Turkish side had to die if they just listened to the Prussian commander Golds Pasha from the beginning, which his advice was to starve the enemy out. Eventually they listened to his advice and it worked, but not before hundreds of soldiers had to lose their lives. By the way, Golds Pasha passed away just a couple weeks before the surrender. He died of typhus. However, rumors immediately started to spread that he was poisoned. He was something like 73 years old. Typhus is spread through chiggers, fleas, and ticks. A 73-year-old man being in the field, I can accept that typhus was the cause of death, especially during this time period. And typhus isn't the same as typhoid. Typhus is bacteria spread through chiggers, ticks, and fleas, while typhoid is caused by the salmonella bacteria. Uh, most cases today, if you seek treatment right away with typhus, most will recover, but we've come a long way since 1916 when it took Gold's Pasha. So, when I first started the Ottoman series, I used the term inevitable. I hope I painted a picture during this series that it was inevitable they'd get dragged into this war one way or the other. And their fate following the outbreak of the war was also inevitable. All right, let's see, is there any life updates or admin notes? God, there's so much going on. I will say this, and this isn't a plug. I um, Again, this podcast isn't sponsored by any, anybody. I don't make any money. But if you're a content creator and you're listening to this podcast, you edit audio in particular, um, I took a college class on sound sound production. That's kind of how I got into sound editing, obviously. Um, but I still felt like I was lacking something. And I use Adobe Audition for all, all my sound recording, editing, everything I do. But I still feel like I was missing something. So I picked up this book from Amazon called... Adobe Auditions CC Classroom in a Book. 
and I be- this is the second edition, and I believe it came out in 2022. And because Adobe updates their stuff like every year, they, they create new books every year, but still pretty relevant. Um, and I'm, I learned a lot from this book. Tricks, tips, um, how to save time. So again, if you're a content creator out there and you're just looking to gain more knowledge, you feel like you're still lacking a little bit, um, try one of these books. It helped me out a lot. I really enjoyed it. Again, I learned learned several tips and tricks from this thing. So do yourself a favor and check it out. Um, what am I drinking? I'm drinking some Old Forester 1920 Prohibition style for this episode. Had this plenty of times. To me, this is my favorite old old Forester. And there's several several different ones. Um, I don't know them all by heart, but yeah, there's like five in the lineup. I personally like 1920 the best. And I'm not drinking too much because hoping what well, my plan is. After I record this, I'm still gonna go to jujitsu tonight, so I'm just having a little bit just to kind of warm me up. And how's my jujitsu going? My knee's recovering good. Um, I can still feel it, but that's just age. Everybody asks me, you know, how you doing with your injury? And I, you know, it it's an injury that I'm going to have another one. It comes with the nature of jujitsu. It's all just part of the game. It's all part of training, especially when you get old, you get injured a little bit more. But it's how you treat your injuries. You got to be smart. You got to stay off it during that critical part why things are reattaching or, or something's happening. Um, so I saw I can give, that's the best advice I can give. If you're doing jujitsu, just be smart about your injuries and you'll be on the mat more than you know it. And somebody just joined the podcast right now. Our special little four legged guest with a wrinkly face going right to his bed. Okay. What else? I had something. Oh yeah. I wanted to mention something. I don't know. Shit. It's about, well, whenever this. Russian-Ukrainian war started. <clears throat> I remember talking about it on the podcast. And I said, you know, let's watch out for this. Could be World War Three. I know that was kind of the doomsday mentality, but he just hear me out. And this is kind of related to World War One. If you look at the news, what's going on, it's just, just this whole scenario. I always say that history repeats itself. And if you look about what's going on, you'll see very similar situations that happened before the Great War, even World War II. But you'll notice people start picking sides. And I thought thought this was really interesting. Um, And I'm surprised they're not talking about more in the news. But Iran just kind of shook hands with Saudi Arabia. So I think they kind of know something's coming. And they're like, hey, you want to be friends during this? This is about the time when people start picking their sides. Um, again, I truly believe history repeats itself. If you looked at what happened before before the Great War broke out, you know, everybody had the side they chose. You had the Entente. Germany had its Schlieffen plan. They had their allies. They threw in the the Ottoman Empire, made them pick a side. We're just in that phase, I believe, where everybody's picking a side and, well, who knows what's going to happen from here. But it's pretty interesting.
And yeah, I just wanted to say that. All right, folks. You know I'm here. I'm here to talk about Africa. To be honest, I knew very little about Africa and its role during the Great War. In fact, I still don't know much history about Africa in general. I know, I know there's gorillas, a lot of exotic animals and bugs, a lot of animals that can eat me. Oh, and I know The African Queen, a fantastic movie starring Humphrey Bogart and Katherine Hepburn set during World War I. Spoiler alert, it's really about the two of them going down a river, going after the Imperial Navy in a nutshell. But it really is a fantastic movie. I can see why it's a classic. And fun fact about Humphrey Bogart, he enlisted in the Navy in 1918 and spent most of his time taxing soldiers back home after the armistice. One thing he was quoted saying about the war, Paris, sexy French girls, hot damn. Sadly, he'd probably be in hot water if he was quoting that today. He actually tried to re-enlist during the Second World War, but was denied due to his age. Tragically, Bogart passed away at the age of 57 of cancer. I believe the African Queen was also the inspiration for the Disney ride, The Jungle Cruise, but don't quote me on that. Anywho, Africa and the Great War. First, I think it's important to note that the names of African countries and states today are not what they were known as during the Great War. I'll give you a few examples, but I'll say them in today's name as I go along with this episode. Belgian Congo today is Zaire. Uh, British East Africa today is Kenya. German East Africa today is mainland Tanzania, plus Rwanda and Burundi. Gold Coast today is Ghana. Portuguese East Africa today is Mozambique. And Togoland is now Togo, plus parts of Ghana and Benin. And that's just a few, but again, I'll, I'll say what they are today as I go through this. All right, if you know your World War I history and somebody asks you who fired the first shot, most will say Corporal Ernest Thomas from the 4th Royal Irish Dragoon Guards. It was he who fired the first shot at Mons on the 22nd of August, 1914. And you wouldn't exactly be wrong, but you wouldn't exactly be right. Yes. He did fire the first shot in Europe, but the actual first shot fired around the globe for the war was fired a week earlier, just north of Lom in Togoland. Again, Togoland today is Togo, which is sandwiched between Ghana and Benin. The shot was fired by a black man wearing a British uniform who was never identified. There's a memorial for the first shot in Europe but no memorial stands today for the first shot in Togo. Togoland was then under German protection, which was sandwiched between the British colony of Gold Coast, today Ghana, and the French colony of Dohimi, today Benin. The Gulf of Guinea, which Togoland lies on, is where most of the slaves were supplied from between 1560 and 1860. I actually didn't know that until reading about this interesting bit of information there. 
By 1914, Togoland was the only German colony independent from the fatherland, which also meant they didn't have a standing army, which also is interesting considering they were sandwiched between two Entente's. All they had was really this special police force that consisted, I think, of less than a dozen German officers and over 500 African NCOs. Because of this, the German governor of Togoland, Duke Adolf Friedrich, pleaded with the Entente powers to keep peace in West Africa and to let the big boys fight the war in Europe. Belgium at first thought they could keep the peace in Africa until Germany began sinking their ships on Lake Tanganyika. I hope I said that right. Tanganyika, which is located in the eastern part of Africa. They soon realized a fight was brewing in this region. They were going to have to do as their allied brothers in Europe were about to do, fight. The French and British had reasons for wanting to extend the war into not only Togoland, but all German colonies throughout Africa. One of the main reasons was because Germany had completed a wireless station in Togoland, which considered, was considered to be the most powerful to date. They had direct connections with Germany and cable connections to South America. Germany had similar stations in East and Southwest Africa, along with one in the Cameroons. These systems were considered pretty high-tech for the times. British Admiralty had major concerns because they were capable of communicating with ships throughout the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. They wanted to take these systems down with extreme prejudice or take them over. Negotiations did take place for Germany to give up the colony at Togoland, and naturally this negotiation was a failure. The British then sent in a Gold Coast regiment along with a French force filled with Senegalese troops to catch up with the Germans who appeared to be pulling back to a safer position. And these forces from the British and French were not big in numbers by no means. We're talking less than a thousand troops between both. And both under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Carkeet Bryant. On August 22nd, they caught up with the Germans north of Nuatja, but this wasn't a battle like we're used to hearing about. This is more of a mass confusion in the bush. And literally, this was the bush, or more like a jungle. Patrols from both the British and French got lost, but there was small patches of skirmishes here and there. They reconsolidated to resume the attack on the next day, but by this time, the next morning, the Germans were gone. The British and French took 73 casualties, including 23 KIAs. In considering the numbers going into this, that's a good chunk of loss just starting out. The Germans took very little casualties during this time, though. The hardest fighting on the 23rd came from the left flank of the German line. The French had managed to get within 50 yards of them. This is where a lieutenant by the name of G.M. Thompson was found dead. Around him laid 13 dead African soldiers who died trying to protect the officer. They were buried in a circle around Thompson's grave. Late in the evening on the 24th of August, the Germans sabotaged the wireless station at Kamina by destroying it. And on the morning of the 25th, a German officer was sent to the British lines to ask for terms. Also by the 25th, 
Another British force had arrived from the northern Gold Coast, along with another French force from Dohemi, today called Benin. The British now, feeling superior, didn't accept the terms proposed by the Germans. Bryan said, no way, Jose. We'll only accept an unconditional surrender, which would only benefit us. The Germans didn't have the manpower to put up a fight. On the 26th of August, Major von Doring surrendered, making this the shortest and least bloody conflict of the African campaigns. All right, now let's talk about the Cameroons. This was Germany's other colony in what was known as the Slave Coast. The Germans also spelled it K-A-M-E-R-U-N, Cameroon. Its name is the Portuguese word for prawns because they were, they were once in abundance in this area. Cameroon is hot and extremely humid. It literally is the jungle out there. In 1914, the Cameroons was believed to have been one of the unhealthiest places on earth. It was dubbed the white man's grave. Sadly, Cameroon today is still one of the most unhealthiest places on earth mainly due to the lack of sufficient medical care. HIV slash AIDS have ravaged the Cameroons for decades now. Then you have malaria, tuberculosis, respiratory infections, and more. Disease and conflicts have taken its toll on the country for a long time now. A very sad situation. The Cameroons back in the Great War was sandwiched between British and French territories, so naturally when the war kicked off, this was an area of interest. On the 22nd of August 1914, the French agreed to have its African forces led by British General Charles Dobell, the senior British officer in West Africa, and they were to attack the Germans at Douala. Eight days later, Dobell and his staff boarded a ship in Liverpool and made their way to Lagos. The German and British forces in West Africa were quite small compared to other campaigns or, or other fronts. However, the British force was about three times larger than the Germans. But the German force, known as the Schutztruppe, were much better trained and prepared for a war unlike the British soldiers in West Africa. The British were to attack at, the, at three points. A northern column would advance on Mora, which was a strong German hill fort. A column from Yola would move on to, uh, I'm going to butcher this, Garua. Garua. <laughs> I don't know why I have so, but I was reading the book, I had a hard time pronouncing it, Garua. Uh, there it is, Garua. And a third column in the south would attack Sonicoc. A pretty straightforward plan of attack. The northern column crossed into Moor on the 25th of August, only to find the Germans well dug in. After two days of fighting and taking heavy losses, the British retreated across the border. The column from Yola attacked Garua on the evening of August 30th. Much like the northern column, they too suffered severe losses and pulled back. The column in the south managed to capture Sanakang. But the Germans answered with a counterattack, which almost annihilated the whole British southern column. The Germans got three quick victories under its belt at the Cameroons. They were now in a position to threaten Calabar, 
a port city in Nigeria close to the Cameroon border. And the British were really down and out about this, mainly because the French were seeing success with their attacks. The French had just launched an attack with 600 tirailleurs at Kuseri near the Lake Chad region, which was the chief German post. By September 21st, they sank two German ships and established a beachhead. So you can see why the British are feeling a little down at this point. And what is a tirailleur? <laughs> I probably butchered that too. For those that don't know, and ex again, excuse my pronunciation, it's spelled T-I-R-A-I-L-L-E-U-R. And it's probably the most French word you can ever say. Tirailleur. I, I know I'm butchering it. A tirailleur is a light infantry soldier trained to go ahead of the main columns. Kind of like an expeditionary force would today. Originally formed during the Napoleonic era, the term translates to infantry soldier. Again, they were used as the first in soldiers to build up skirmishes before the main groups would arrive. Then during the 19th and 20th centuries, they were formed from colonial and indigenous soldiers. A good amount of tirailleurs were Senegalese. Uh, there's still one active regiment today, the first tirailleurs. And they served all throughout the Western Front, wherever there were French soldiers present. Unlike the American military during the Great War, the French welcomed black soldiers. Uh, American soldiers, Marines, and even generals refused to fight alongside African-American soldiers during the Great War. So they ended up handing them, them off to the French. Uh, there's a movie I'm going to recommend for this episode, and it's probably not the best recommend, recommendation, mainly because if you're not from France, it might be a little difficult to watch. The movie is called Father and Soldier, starring Omar Sy, released in 2022. It's about a father who enlists in the Great War to be next to his 17-year-old son. Um, I've been trying to find a way to watch this, but no luck so far. It received great ratings, and if you're able to find out how to watch it, please let me know. Fingers crossed I'll be able to rent it soon. And the father and son are tirailleurs. Anywho, I just veered off the road there. Um, where in the heck was I? Oh, yeah. So the French scored a big win by establishing this beachhead on the 21st of September. The French and British, along with the Belgians, who will later join the fight, agreed that Douala would be the main target at the Cameroons. Douala housed one of German... Germany's wireless communication stations, which the British wanted destroyed. A naval squadron was sent to protect Dobell's expedition force, who under the command of Captain Cyril Fuller, the naval squadron consisted of the HMS Cumberland, the HMS Challenger, both cruisers, the HMS Dwarf, a gunboat, and a French cruiser. One of Fuller's main tasks was to seek out safe anchor points for his fleet. He immediately sent out explorations. 
On September 9th, the dwarf crossed into the estuary of the Cameroons and the Dibamba River. It was followed by the Cumberland on the next day. They found a temporary anchor point at Sualaba Point. Two gunboats from the Cumberland were sent to make their way up Dibamba and made it as far as Piti when they came under heavy fire from gun emplacements along the shores. Two days later at Yost Point, the dwarf also came under heavy fire but managed to get away. Six days later, the dwarf was rammed by the steamer Nachtigall, which backfired on the German boat because it ended up exploding. The stout little dwarf, although suffering some heavy damage, stayed afloat and was repaired in a week's time. Fuller then sent every able boat to peek around every corner and into every hole along the estuary. He wanted all threats eliminated. And think about this. The boat crews weren't only in danger from armed German boats or German positions along the shore. Again, Africa is home to several apex predators. It's like that scene out of Apocalypse Now, when I think it was Chef who gets out of the boat to pick something. I think he's collecting like fruits or something and this tiger comes jumping out. You can't just take a casual dip in the river or stroll in the forest in Africa. There's too many things that can chew you up for a meal or chew you up and spit you out if they don't like the taste of you. Yes, I would agree they weren't in danger like the other fronts, but in no way was this the easy way out of the Great War or the safest job in the Navy at the time. Another attempt to sink the dwarf was made on September 15th when the Germans launched a torpedo from the side of a ship, but the torpedo went off course and landed ashore. Then the detonation didn't cause any harm. Four days later, another attempt was made, but the torpedo was spotted and sunk. The dwarf had proved to be a tough little ship to sink. By late September, Dobell's Cameroon Expedition Force had arrived and were ready to make way. Keep in mind, this area is treacherous with impenetrable forests spanning roughly 150 miles inland through the whole coastline with plenty of fauna that could kill, such as alligators along with disease-bearing insects. Fauna is animals or insects, birds, reptiles that are unique to a region. At the beginning of October 1914, Senegalese tirailleurs were sent to remove German entrenchment positions at the Yapoma River Bridge that crosses the Sanaga River today. This was also known as the Edia German Bridge or just the German Bridge. But to be honest, this was kind of confusing when I first read about this. What helps is knowing where both Douala and Edia are. Both are on the coast of Cameroon. The Dibamba River is a river system that runs through the southern portion of Douala and connects to the Gulf of Guinea today. Edia is southeast of Douala. The Sanaga River runs through the northern portion of Edia. The Yapoma Rail Railway Bridge spelled with a Y, but prior to this was spelled with a J, is just outside Douala. 
In cases like this, it really helps to look at a map to get oriented. And it's confusing because there's a bridge in Adia that looks like the original. But I guess it doesn't matter though. I mean, I don't think seeing the bridge is on many people's bucket lists. Anywho, the Tirayurs were sent to deal with the situation and had to be reinforced by a detachment of Marines. They attempted to circle behind the Germans and ended up pulling back from Douala and were unsuccessful in taking down the bridge. On October 6th, the Tirayurs finally secured Douala, forcing the Germans to retreat with the help of heavy artillery. They then prepared to move on to Adia and Yabasi, which Dobel considered essential if they truly wanted to have a full hold on Douala. And that's really important to understand because it was very similar to the British in the Middle East. They weren't there just to take one town. They wanted to keep pushing and take as much as possible, removing the Germans from Africa altogether. Dobell chose Yabasi as the first target. This was considered the easier of the two, but in no way, shape, or form was the terrain in Yabasi easy. It was dense with jungle and filled with swamps. Dobell chose Yabasi as the first target. This was considered the easier of the two, but in no way, shape, or form was the terrain in, into Yabasi easy. It was dense with jungle and filled with swamps. If you've been in the military and done any type of jungle training or, or trained in swamps, you'll know this is no walk in the park. The expedition force was loaded onto a variety of river craft, such as dredgers, steam launchers, a steam tug, a stern wheeler, surf boats, motor launches, and a picket boat. On the 7th of October, they set off, but they ended up abandoning the attack on Yabasi due to what some believed as the river falling. Dobell ordered the men back to Douala, reorganized, and set off again on the 13th of October. On the 14th, they finally secured Yabasi. Dobell designed a new plan of attack for Adia, which would be known as the First Battle of Adia, which began on October 20th. The expeditionary force would disembark 20 miles away from Adia, where they would march in for the surprise. And for the First Battle of Adia, there's really not much to talk about other than the Germans putting up a fierce resistance at first. Then they quickly realized they couldn't hold back Dobell's force, so they retreated back to Yuande, giving it to the French attackers. Pretty straightforward. Nothing too extreme so far. After Dobell considered Douala secured, British Admiralty requested that Fuller and his cruisers be released from Dobell so they could be used elsewhere. Well, this was alarming news to Dobell, obviously because he didn't want the cruisers to leave, but he also really respected Fuller's leadership style and accomplishments. He really felt the need to keep Fuller around, so he put up a fight. Dobell also didn't like the fact that he was told Fuller would be replaced by a French commander. Dobell voiced his opinion, saying the following. Owing to the complex nature of the operations, it would be a matter of grave difficulty for any British officer to act in concert with an officer of a different nationality. 
My experience of the French temperament leads me to believe that much of the methodical work that has to be performed at all hours of the day and night does not appeal to the characteristics displayed by that nationality. End quote. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of harsh. It'd be a bit rude. But you can't blame him for wanting to keep around Fuller. He got along well with Fuller, and that's not always the case with senior military leaders. You know, often their egos clash. The Admiralty were hesitant at first, but finally agreed, but said that the HMS Cumberland must leave at the end of November. By the beginning of December, Dobell's forces led by Brigadier General Gorges were advancing on the Northern Railways. By Christmas, they were concentrated at a village called Melong. 55 miles north of the main railhead was the German fort at Cheng, near the Nigerian border, their next target. Cheng, given its name by the Germans, means the land of idle talk. It's about 4,500 feet above sea level. I've seen photos and different travel videos about Cheng. Some actually call it a beautiful, healthy resort-like town. Today, the main language spoken is French, due to Germany losing it after the Great War. To me, it sort of looks like a jungle-esque Tijuana. Probably shouldn't drink the water. There's probably some things worth seeing. Good food. Natives seem real nice. But be wise if you had good situational awareness if you were planning on visiting. To call it a resort-like town... I think that may be going a bit overboard, honestly. Now, <coughs> excuse me. The battles in Africa at the start of the war can't be compared to the other fronts. Size is much smaller. Terrain is different. And the Germans, for the most part, haven't so far really been showing any will to hold their ground. Well, by New Year's Day in 1915, the expedition force reached a crossroad just seven miles southwest of Shang. The next day, Shang was surrendered after an art artillery bombardment. The British didn't even have time to mount an assault. Gorges destroyed the fort and returned to the railhead. Just like that, it was given up. This must have sparked a fire in the Germans because now they were ready to go on the offensive. On January 5th, they launched an assault onto Adia. They weren't successful, but at least they attacked. The French at the garrison were able to hold them off. The Germans started being spotted in areas that Gorges had and the expeditionary force had pulled back from. On March 3rd, Gorges led a force into the town of Bear, where the Germans had entrenched themselves along the main road. The British, who were mainly made up of troops from Sierra Leone, found the Germans were too much for them to handle. That's because the Germans had machine gun positions covering all directions on the road. The British suffered a good amount of casualties. What they didn't know right away was so did the Germans. As the British began a retreat, they realized the Germans had also pulled back determining they too must have taken some good hits. So the British made a U-turn and went back, 
halted at Bear and dug in. The Germans had pulled back just north of Melong, and the reason for the quick decision for pulling back on both sides was manpower. They didn't have the troop presence like they did on other fronts. So both sides set in for the rainy season, but by March of 1915, the British and French had established good positions at the Cameroons under the command of General Dobell. In April, British Colonel Frederick Q. Cunliffe was ordered to lead an attack at the northwest corner of the Cameroons at Garua. Garua is actually pretty deep into Cameroon, which is why Cunliffe was in command. <coughs> it wouldn't have been possible for Dobell to command this far out. Garua is getting close to the country known as Chad today. By April 18th, he assembled nine companies of British infantry and three companies of tirailleurs. This consisted of cavalry, machine gun teams, artillery, and of course, grunts. Cunliffe was ready to strike, but before he could do so, the Germans had their own surprise. During the evening slash early morning of April 21st, 22nd, a German column close to 300 men slipped out of Garua, passing Cunliffe's troops. This German column was also reinforced by troops from, from Gondier. The Germans, led by Captain von Kreilsheim, managed to dodge Cunliffe's troops up through the up through the 8th of May. Which really makes no sense why he would e exit out of Garua only to evade Cunliffe, but this is what happened. Finally, the Germans returned to Garua. By the end of May, over 5,000 yards of trenches were constructed by the French on the outer parts of the town. By June 9th, Cunliffe's troops had a line of trenches 400 yards wide and within, and within 1,000 yards of the fort at Garua. The night of June 9th through the early morning of the 10th, the Germans made two exit attempts. Again, this doesn't make sense to now exit again, but this is what happened. The first attempt was halted by accurate Nigerian rifle fire. The second was a disaster. A good portion of the soldiers ran for it, dropping their rifles and jumping into the ben Benu River. It was estimated only 50 strong swimmers survived. The British fished out 70 bodies from the water on June 10th. On July 10th, Cunliffe was ready for a full-blown attack, but suddenly a white flag was seen waving over the fort. The artillery bombardment launched by the British beforehand was just too much to handle for the natives. And I say natives because in total that surrendered, there was 37 Europeans versus 220 Africans. They also surrendered five guns along with Maxim machine guns and plenty of ammunition and provisions. The German officers had later said the artillery, artillery really spooked the African soldiers. It was just too much for them to handle and they wouldn't have been able to put up a good fight. Cunliffe followed up his victory by seizing Gondier. On August 25th, an Allied conference was held in Douala. 
Plans to capture the whole of the Cameroons were drawn up. In early October, as the rainy season was dying off, the campaign was underway. Dobell advanced from the west, Cunliffe from the north, and two French columns pushed from the east. Banyo, a German town roughly around 125 miles southwest of Gondier, was the target. Here, the German Schutztrupp gave the Allies a tough go at it as they had a strong position on the mountain that rose 1,200 feet above the surrounding country. By November 2nd, Cunliffe had the mountain surrounded, and by the 4th, he had men climbing under a rainstorm. The men struggled over the boulders and thorny shrub, not to mention the hailstorm of bullets coming from the well-in-placed Maxim machine gun positions. One company of Nigerians reached the summit, but after their commanding officer fell, the men fl fled back down. During the evening, African carriers brought up food and water to the beaten British soldiers. By dawn on the 5th, they were back at it again. This time, the Germans also added to their arsenal, dynamite being launched down the mountain along with large stones. Another night set upon them, along with a thunderous storm of bombs going off all around the mountain. Then came another dawn. However, this time, they could see a white flag waving over the German position. The Germans made a lot of odd decisions in Africa during this time, leading me to believe they kept the good officers away from the colonies. I could be completely wrong about that, though. I'm just thinking... They had this stronghold and were really pounding on the British, scaling the mountain. Why not keep going? It wasn't like the Germans to easily surrender. With the capture of Banyo, the British had a good foothold. And the French took the town of Tabati on November 3rd. The Germans were crushed at the Cameroons. And the rough estimate of casualties since the expedition began at the Cameroons up through the end of 1915, over 5,000 casualties, the British with 16, over 1,600 KIAs, most died though of disease. French had over 2,500 dead, also the majority came from disease. On March 4th, 1916, Britain and France divided the former German colony between them. France took the majority of the share. And that's going to be it for this episode, folks. I originally was going to do one episode for Africa, but honestly, I'm, I'm finding this material just fascinating. And I feel it would be an injustice not to talk about Germany's second biggest colony on this continent, Southwest Africa. So, next episode will be part two of Africa and the Great War. All right, folks. I really appreciate everybody's support. Uh, I get just great feedback from listeners. People give me great messages. Um, until the next episode, take care, everyone.